Please open your Bibles to Job. Would you join me as we uh, invite the Lord to, to guide our time together? Father, we, we once again come to you in Jesus' name. We ask that you would take your word and speak to us. These ancient words that we just sang about, they've been handed down to us. They're given to us to teach us more about who you are as our Father, as our Redeemer, as our King, as Sovereign God. Help us to hear what you want us to understand about ourselves, about life, about, about suffering in this life, and how you sovereignly work through these things to accomplish your good, acceptable, and perfect will. So we ask for your help today. Well, as you know, we began looking at the book of Job last week, wanted to look at, at it as a whole and get, get an overview of this, of this book, and we started that, um, that expedition, uh, but we didn't finish it. So today we're going to finish where we left off last week, but before we do that, I want to just uh, take a moment or two to talk to and about fathers. Um, Kyle Pruitt, who's a medical doctor, has written a book, Father Needs, and uh, this is not a Christian book. Uh, to my understanding, he is not a believer. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he doesn't write from that perspective. He doesn't re reference the Word of God at all. He doesn't reference biblical principles, uh, but he talks about father needs, and he uses research and years of, of observation uh, to make his conclusions about how important it is uh, that fathers fulfill their role in, in the lives of their children in society. And I'm just going to read one paragraph from this book because I want us to see uh, kind of from a statistical, or not necessarily statistics, but just a percentage of kind of the importance from the research. He writes, University of Pennsylvania's Frank Furstenberg and Kathleen Harris fine-tuned our understanding of the father-child dialogue by showing that it is the closeness felt by the child to the father, not just his presence or even his living at home, that is most predictably associated with positive life outcomes for the child 25 years later. Children who feel a closeness to their father are twice as likely as those who do not to enter college or find stable employment after high school. 75% less likely to have a teen birth. 80% less likely to spend time in jail, and half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms. What that tells me is that if there's one thing that can be done that will make the greatest difference in a child's life and in society, it is a father engaging and connecting with their child, their children. Or a father figure, because there are some out there that do not have a father, a biological father that is either involved at all or um, 
is there or, or even alive. And so for us as men and as fathers, particularly with our own children, but also as we, as we have opportunity to be a father figure in some other child's life, we need to consider what that could mean and to take that seriously. I also want to draw your attention, since we're in the book of Job, to the example of Job as a father. In chapter 1, and verse 5, we see this. And I read this last week, but I didn't necessarily refer to it much. But we see that, verse 5, And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that is, his children would gather together, as verse 4 says, they would get together in each other's homes and they would have a feast. And he says, when that feasting had completed, that Job would send and consecrate them, that is, his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, what Job did for his children, in essence, was he interceded for them. Now, it looked different in his day with burnt offerings and things of that nature. But Job would rise early in the morning, and he would intercede on behalf of his children, saying, perhaps they have sinned or have cursed God in their hearts. I want to challenge and encourage us as fathers, if you haven't been doing this, to do this, and if you are, to continue doing this, and that is to pray for your children. To do this every day. To pray not just that they would be healthy, that they would be happy, uh, that they would, you know, succeed in life. And those are all great things to pray for. But as Christian fathers, we want our children to walk with God. We want our children to know Him, to love Him, to fear Him, to serve Him, to live their lives, to honor our God and our King. And so as fathers, Christian fathers, we ought to be praying for our children to this end. Job says, perhaps there's something going on inside their heart that is not right. There's, there's disobedience in their heart before God. I might not see it. I might not be able to address it with them. But I'm praying for them even, even still. And, and I, I'll, I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll say this, <laughs> my kids can hear this. I pray for my kids every day. And one of the things I pray for is that if they are cultivating disobedience in their heart, things I don't see, but things that God knows, that God would deal with that. He would deal with that as He sees appropriate. Because my desire is my children would know and love God and would walk with God. And if they're not walking with God in their heart, that God would deal with that so that they will repent and come to Him and walk with Him appropriately. That's my heart desire. So I'll pray that. So I'll say, my one son that's here and those who may be watching online, if you're having problems because you're not walking with God, you can blame me. Because <laughs> I'm praying against it. Um, again, because I, it would be devastating to me that my children would, would pretend their whole life to be what I want them to be, but not be that way. So, I just want to encourage and challenge fathers. Pray. 
pray for your children's spiritual well-being as well as these other things that you desire for them in their life. That they would walk with God and be what God would have them to be. Job does this. Job is a, a great example of a father. Uh, now, yes, we see God had a different purpose. And what maybe Job would have wanted, he trusts God. And that's the amazing thing to me about this man, is that he, he trusts God. Now, we're going to see how, how God took him to a deeper level in all of that as we uh, continue in looking at the book of Job as a whole. Well, we're looking at this whole issue of, <clears throat> of, of the suffering of man and the sovereignty of God. How do these things play together? And last week we looked at the first scene in this book, which covers just chapters 1 and 2. And that is the dialogue between God and Satan in heaven. And we saw God ask a question, and that question was this, Have you considered my servant Job? He suggests that to Satan. Satan's been roaming on the earth. And he comes before God and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? For this man Job is, is uh, a man who is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan's answer to that was, Well, of course he serves you. He serves you because you're good to him. Take that away from him. Do something to him. Put your hand on him in a negative way. He'll curse you to your face. And the result was that God gives permission to Satan to inflict pain. God says, okay, I'll give you permission. And so Satan takes away all of his wealth, takes away his children, and he takes away his health. And Job's response is, Lord's given and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told that in all these things, Job did not sin with his, with his words. It's amazing. Well, that's what we looked at last week. Today we want to pick up with scene two. A dialogue between Job and his friends. What happens now, starting with chapter three, all the way to chapter 37. And we're not going to read it all. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna kind of give you a, a, again an over overview of what's going on here. There's this dialogue, Job and his and his three friends. You'll recall at the end of chapter two, his three friends come and sit with Job for seven days without saying a word. Again, what a great example of what a friend is. Job was covered from head to foot with these boils. They didn't even recognize him when they saw him. And they sat down with him in the dust and the ashes for seven days, just being with him in his incredible grief and pain. What a great way to comfort people. It's when they open their mouth that things went bad. Sometimes we think, man, I don't know what to say to somebody. We don't say, you don't have to say anything. Just be there. Just, just show up and be a friend and care. So Job starts by lamenting the day of his birth, right? So chapter 3, afterward Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? That's where Job is right now. I wish I'd never even been born. 
It's understandable given what he's just been through and what he is going through in the moment. And then his friends begin to speak. You know, the, the, the question that Job is asking in this whole dialogue, where he speaks, his friend speaks, then he speaks, then another friend speaks, he speaks, then the third friend speaks, then he speaks, and then the first friend speaks again, then he speaks, and he goes back and forth three times through these chapters. The question that Job asks is, why is God afflicting me when I've done nothing wrong? Why am I going through all of this? I've done nothing to deserve this. Again, a question that many of us ask when we go through suffering of some kind. Why me? Why now? What have I done? Why is this happening to me? When I didn't do anything to deserve this. And we, we see this, and I'll just, I'll just reference a couple of places where Job speaks uh, where he says these things. Chapter 7, verse 20. He's talking to God. He says, Have I sinned, and what have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? Right? Why are you afflicting me like this? And then chapter 9, verses 17 through 20. He bruises me for, with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. That's where Job is. What is God up to? Why is God doing this? Why is he afflicting me like this? We know that he is blameless and upright. The text tells us. God says it when he's talking to Satan. So he has seemingly good cause to say this and to feel this way. What is God up to? <laughs> you know, in times like this, the enemy wants to get you and I to doubt one of two things about God. Either to doubt God's goodness or God's greatness. God's love for us, or God's power in our lives. So if He can get you to doubt God's goodness, or God's love for you, you might say, well, I know God is all-powerful, and He can do what He wants to do. He can get me out of this. He can take care of this. But apparently, God doesn't care enough to do it. When we begin to doubt the goodness, the love of God, we, we move away. If the enemy can get us to believe that God is not all loving and all wise and all good and he has a good plan for your life, then he will get you to walk away from God in some way. Or it might be that you say, well, I know God loves me. I know God is all loving and he's good, but maybe God is not all powerful. And so God wants to do what's in my best interest, but doesn't have the ability to do it in this situation. When we come to that conclusion, we walk away from God because why would you serve a God who is not all-powerful? Now, when we're not going through hard things, we can easily say, well, yeah, I believe God is good and I believe God is great. 
But when you're experiencing hardship, when you're going through the deep, dark valley like Job was, and you're confronted with that, then what you really believe will come true. And so this is where he is in this struggle. Why is this going on? Why is God allowing this in my life? But even in the midst of this struggle, we see Job acknowledging some very important truths. Chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. He says, though he take my life, I am going to trust and hope in him. And while I'm in this, I'm going to keep coming to him and I'm going to keep bringing my case before him. And he says in verse 16, this also will be my salvation for a godless man may not come before his presence. And then chapter 19, verse 25. Probably one of the more familiar verses that we know about in Job. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. What a prophetic statement. Because one day that Redeemer did stand on this earth. And he gave his life on our behalf. Another thing that Job says in this in this. Um, whole dialogue back and forth that is really critically important is in chapter 28. Job reveals wisdom. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about Hebrew poetry and the parallelism and all that, we talked about a little bit about chiasm, chiastic structure. And remember what a chiastic structure is? is kind of like an hourglass that starts big and then kind of arrows in and then goes back out. And so a chiasm basically is um, the beginning and the end are parallel, and then they kind of it keeps paralleling in until you get to the center, which is kind of the core issue. Some people believe that the book of Job is a chiasm, and chapter 28 is the, is the center point. Is the, this is the chapter that's really all about is the wisdom. We know this is part of wisdom literature. But listen to what he says in chapter 28, verse 12 and following. He says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Right? The deep says, It's not in me. And the sea says, It's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ephur. In a, in a precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we've heard a report of it. (laughs) As he's been talking with these old men that are his friends who are supposed to be wise people, and he's like, there's no wisdom here. Where is it? 
And then verse 23, God understands its way and he knows its place. And then the last verse, verse 28 of chapter 28, he says, and to man he said, this is, I guess, God speaking, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. We knew, knew that from Proverbs, right? This is wisdom, not just in Proverbs. This is right here. It's also in the Psalms. This is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. And so Job is struggling. Job is questioning. Job is wrestling. And yet in the midst of all this, he continues to acknowledge these incredible truths, these important truths. He hasn't given up on him. So what's the answer to his question from his friends? As he asks the question, why is God doing all this to me? The answer they give is, you must have done something wrong. So just repent. Right, listen to their words. Eliphaz, one of the, the ones. I'll, I'll give you a couple of his, his words in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, harvest. Job, you reap what you sow. And apparently, you've reaped some bad stuff. So you're, are you sowing some bad stuff and you're reaping this stuff? You've done something wrong. And in chapter 4, verse 17, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job, you say you're righteous before God, but can anybody be? You must have done something wrong for God to do this to you. And then in chapter 5, verse 17, behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. Just yield to God and He will heal you. Now, I step back and say, well, is there anything wrong with knowing what you reap what you sow? Right? We know that. That's throughout all of Scripture. We know that nobody is completely just before God. And we know that as we yield to God, God forgives. And these are, this is all good stuff. Bildad, the second one. He basically says, if you just would seek God, right? Chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself to you and restore your righteous estate, though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter. Lo, God will not reject the man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers, and he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Basically says, listen, Job, if you would just seek God and his compassion, God will, you know, God will take care of this. He'll restore you. Again, they all sound good. The last guy, Zophar, um, chapter 11, 13 through 17. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hands to him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it away from you. And, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then, indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect. 
and you would be steadfast and not fear, for you would forget your trouble as the waters have passed by. You would remember it, and your life would be brighter than noonday, and darkness would be like the morning. You see what their answer is, basically. Job, you, you, obviously, God would not let this happen to you if you hadn't done something wrong. You've obviously done something wrong, so just confess it, repent of it, and God will restore everything. Again, is there anything wrong with this advice? I mean, and, and I'm just giving you a snippet here, but this is kind of what's repeated as Job responds to them and says, I didn't do anything. And they're saying, Job, come on. Get with it. You must have done something. And he says, I, no. And then they're back and forth. But this is the basic thing that's going back and forth with them. You see, they have good logic. Sound theology in many ways. But as the writer of Expository Bible Commentary says, much of what Job's counselor said is theologically sound and true in the abstract, but it did not necessarily apply to Job. It's not so much what they said, but what they left unsaid that really makes what they, their advice really shallow. Because they, they don't know something that we know and that is the scene in heaven in chapters 1 and 2. Good advice. Misapplied. Because they only know what they know. And that's why our wisdom is limited. And it's a good reminder to us that when we have opportunity to give advice, we need to be cautious. Because we only know what we know. And so we offer advice that is founded in the Word of God, much like these men do. But we want to be careful not to step over the line and make a judgment call about a person when we don't know all of the facts. They took truth, and I believe misapplied it to Job. Well, yes, God is good, and God is just, and but they made an assumption that Job had, was guilty of sin. The one thing that they did not understand is that though suffering may be a form of discipline from God, not all suffering is God's discipline. They made an assumption that because he was suffering, he had sinned. And we have to be very careful. When we have an opportunity to give biblical counsel and advice, we may think that, but we need to be careful to search out the truth. We can invite people to investigate their life, but not to accuse them when we don't know everything that's going on. And so what is the result? God is silent and allows the dialogue to reveal a deeper issue in Job's life. And that is self-righteousness. Job had all the external things in place, it would appear. Because to be blameless didn't mean to be sinless, but it meant that you were above reproach. That you did not have any glaring issues in your life that someone could look and say, see, 
so it's very possible as I, as I look at this and I ponder what was going on here, I come to a conclusion that it's very possible that Job was focusing almost completely on his external behavior and saying, I've done nothing wrong. And yet, in the process of this, what is revealed is his own self-righteousness. And we see this in chapter 32. When a fourth friend shows up. Actually, he was there the whole time. He just wasn't speaking. His name is Elihu, and he's a younger man. Let me read the scenario for you. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. And these three men ceased answering Job right after this dialogue, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They finally just stopped. They said, yeah, we're not getting through to him. We're done. Probably the smartest thing they did. And he says, they ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Spiritual pride, right? Self-righteous. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakil, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job and his anger, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. And Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. And so Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in men, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. And the abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, and I will tell you what I think. So Elihu begins to speak. And again, has a lot of good things to say. Uh, chapter 33, 8 through 12, he says to Job, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. And he quotes Job, and he says, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he intervenes uh, and invents pretexts against me and counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks, and he watches all my paths. And he says then to Job, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in your eyes. For God is greater than man. And he says in chapter 34, verse 12, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. There's something going on here, Job, that's bigger than what we understand. Because God would not be unjust in his dealings. He would not pervert justice or act wickedly. And then in chapter 37, I think what he's doing is preparing the way for God to show up. As we see in chapter 37, verse 14, he says, listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. And then the last verse, 24. Therefore men fear him who does not regard any who are wise of heart. Job has become wise of heart. Jo Job has become self-righteous. Or at least it has now been revealed. He may have been that way all the time, but it's now revealed. And so we see 
that God is taking Job on a journey through this suffering and all this situation with his friends. He's taking him to a deeper level of relationship. He's helping him see beyond the external. And I want to I just pause for a moment and, and consider this. Many of us have grown up in, in the church. Many of us maybe grew up in conservative churches, where uh, maybe fundamentalist church, where there's been a heavy, heavy emphasis on externals to the detriment of what's going on inside. Um, I, I grew up in a church like this, where, where they were more concerned, for the most part, with the way I looked, the clothes that I wore, how short my hair was, and how I behaved on the outside than what was going on inside of my heart. Nothing that I remember was ever talked about. Now, obviously, there's an importance to how we behave and how we live and and how we act and all those things. But when we focus all our attention on external righteousness, we become blind to the internal reality of unrighteousness in our hearts. And I think that possibly could be what was going on with Job. And God says, I care too much about you to let you stay there. I want to take you deeper. I want to expose what's going on inside of your heart. And he does that through suffering. What happens if we spend all of our time on the external is we we focus on behavior modification and we miss internal transformation. Spiritual maturity happens when we begin to deal with what's on the inside as well as the outside. Because when my heart is right, my behavior will, will come forth, will be the, the, the heart will be the spring that brings forth all of the, 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 the positive, positive results on the outside. And it will be genuine and authentic. As opposed to just cleaning up the outside and pretending to be something on the outside that you're not really on the inside. It might look the same to other people, but one is genuine and one is not. So we can be guilty, again, in churches that are very conservative in doctrine and, and very uh, important. The Word of God is very important. and We can be guilty of making it all about the outside. And we can be guilty of raising up people who focus only on that. And then what happens to our children when they get to the age where they can make their own decisions? They look and they say, man, there's a lot of hypocrisy. think that's what Christianity is. And I want no part of that. Now some may walk away when there's, when there's genuine, proper understanding of what's going on, on the inside. At least they walk away having a better sense of what they're losing 
think that there's a lot more. Who, when they understand this is really about heart transformation, about relationship with God. What's that? Because they know this is real. So I believe God is doing this for Job and he's bringing him to that place. And so that's scene two. Now we come to scene three. A dialogue between God and Job. Chapter 38, the Lord shows up in the whirlwind and asks a question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Right? Who is talking but isn't saying anything? Who is opening his mouth but has no idea what he's saying? And in chapter 38 and chapter 39, God reveals his power and his wisdom as the creator and sustainer of all life by asking question after question of Job, right? He says in verse, verse 4 of 38, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? And what were its bases some? Or what, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, you're so smart. You know it all. You tell me. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on. For two chapters, to ask question after question about this, to reveal to Job that he has no idea what he's talking about. And then we come to chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer him. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hands on my mouth. Once I've spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add no more. I opened my mouth before. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't amount to anything. I'm, I'm keeping it shut. And then we come to chapters 40 and 41, where God once again begins the dialogue. Verse 6, the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And he uses two illustrations to reveal the sovereign authority and power of God. One is behemoth and the second is Leviathan. These two animals that man could not control. Now some, some like to speculate, well, behemoth is a hippopotamus and Leviathan is an alligator. Maybe, but maybe they were not. Maybe it was something we don't know about. Maybe it was an animal that is extinct now. A lot of characteristics of those animals, but some not. But what God is saying is, <laughs> Job, you see these animals, these these creatures that are ferocious, that that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even attempt to get close to. They're my pet. 
control you. I'm in control of all things. I know what I am doing. Do you? (laughs) Do you even have a clue what's really going on? Again, Job's response, verse 40, chapter 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. In other words, God, I know you're all-powerful and you are sovereign and you are working a plan out, a purpose out, that cannot be thwarted by anyone, anything. I get it. You know what you're doing. Even when I don't. And then he, he reminds God of, of his question. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And he answers, Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I do not know. And then again he quotes God. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you, do thou instruct me? And he answers this, verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now I see. Now my eye sees thee. Therefore I retract. And I repent in dust and ashes. So the question is, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Job's answer is, I place my hand over my mouth. I got nothing. I got nothing. And what is the result? God reveals himself. Job repents. And then God restores. In verses 7 to 17 of chapter 42, I don't have time to read it, but what God does is God restores um, Job's wealth. He gives him more children. In fact, it says in verse 10 that he restored fortunes, or the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And he consoled and comforted him for all the evil that had come upon him. A couple things that are interesting to know. God never explains himself to Job. He never says, Job, you see, let me tell you what happened up in heaven between me and Satan. Job never knew about that until until he died and then maybe got insight. God never says, well, this is why I did this. He simply reveals himself to Job. Job sees God. He says, I I heard about you, but now I see you. See, when Job entered entered into a deeper relationship with God, because God revealed himself through all this suffering and everything that he went through, Job didn't need an explanation. Job had a relationship with God. It was deep and abiding. So God was drawing Job closer to himself through that which Satan intended for evil, but God intended for good. And so the question again remains, do I believe and trust God? And what God is doing what God is allowing uh, in my life? Do I really believe that God is good and has a good purpose that He will ultimately bring about for my life? 
and that what he believes is good is better than what I think is good. It may not be the way I want it to be, but it's the way God intends it to be because God knows best. And I believe God is all-powerful and that God is sovereign and He's in control and He can bring it about no matter what Satan does, thinks, or tries to do. God's in control. And I fear not what the enemy does. I have a healthy fear of Almighty God. We all have to come to this place. I believe, for whatever it's worth, that God reserves the ministry of suffering for His choicest favorites. The things He lets people go through to bring them closer to Himself. Reserved for those who are His choicest servants, whoever they may be. That's God's business. Certainly true for this one. I don't know what all everyone's going through. I don't know what is in our future. But I know God can be trusted. And we need to know that before we enter in <laughs> to that suffering because suffering is intense and the enemy really, really works in those times trying to discourage us faith and we need to know the truth so that we can apply the truth when the heat gets turned on would you pray with me gracious father thank you for your word Thank you for Job, what he went through, what he learned, and what we learn from him. And God, I pray for those who are suffering right now in difficult, difficult circumstances. I pray that they would who you are. That they would know that you are indeed good and great. That you are in charge of this. And that you have a purpose. A good purpose. And though we can't see it right now, by faith we believe based on the Word of God based on the character of God. We hold on and we trust that. Lord, I don't know what is in our future as individuals, even as a church. We don't know what you have planned, what the enemy would like to do, and what you would give permission for him to do. We don't know any of that. But we, we hold our lives, our church, our children in your hands. In our hands loosely, we, we hold them up to you and we, we trust you, oh God. And we thank you that you are trustworthy. We pray this in the name, the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord.
Well, we're going to conclude our service by singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In the one verse, I think it's the third verse, it says, uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love that phrase because reality is that in our own fleshly nature, that's all of us. We're prone to, to walk away from God. But God holds us there. He holds us in His hand. And what a wonderful thing. So let's praise God today. Let's stand and sing together.